listening to the weekly sermon from the Divine Church in Madison, Wisconsin, a spirit-filled family that makes disciples and advanced leadership among neighbors and nations, declaration and demonstration. For more information and service time, check out our website at season here before they plant Eastside Church. Just want to say a huge thanks to him for his leadership uh, on Good Friday service and for today. And so, Ben, thank you. And um, also uh, want to sh- give a shout out to Laurel and her small team of family members that um, helped set up uh, ministry team, um, set up our food and some beautiful flowers. And so thank you to these guys. Um, really appreciate you guys a lot. Well, this morning, um, we're going to be doing something a little bit unique. Uh, Number one, I'll be drinking tea incessantly, so don't mind that. It's not very normal, but I need it. But we're going to be doing a a bit of a Bible tour today. Typically, if you're new here, what we do is take a passage of Scripture and just try to pick it apart and understand it and look at it from a variety of angles and apply it to our life, and then that's it. But today, we're going to go on a bit of a tour and it's going to be um, a tour of the book of Acts. And what I want to show you this morning is how the book of Acts corresponds to Easter. I don't know if you ever thought about that. There's massive significance for Easter that we will find in the book of Acts. Now, why would we do this tour? Um, well, it's pretty simple. Because Acts is the story of the first church. The first people that planted the first churches that were set on fire by this news of what had happened in history with Jesus. And the reality is, is it just tells the story of the first church. How did we get here today? How did the church come into existence? And the reality is, if the book of Acts had not have happened, we wouldn't be gathered here this morning. So the book of Acts is the story of the birth of the church. And you can draw a straight line from the text that we'll find in Acts to 2,000 years later across an ocean in Madison, Wisconsin. Now this morning we're going to look at a lot of Bible from the book of Acts. And it's going to be kind of a mass exposure to a theme. And I think it's going to be a little unique. um, But it's going to serve this vital purpose And the vital purpose is this. I want us to consider the way in which the first believers in Jesus approached talking about their faith. What did they do with this information that they had received through just observation of what Jesus did in his life, his death? And what we're going to see through a variety of proofs that I want to show you this morning from the Bible is is, is this. Here's the point. The resurrection of Jesus is the centerpiece. The resurrection of Jesus is the centerpiece from beginning to end of the book of Acts. We're going to see them talking and testifying to the fact, did you catch that? It's a fact, that Jesus rose from the dead. He actually rose from the dead. It wasn't an illusion. It wasn't mass hallucination as if that could ever happen. But a body was dead, dead as a doornail, put to death by very well-practiced executioners, the Romans, dead as a doornail, and then as alive 
as any human being has ever been. That happened. That is the Christian claim. And I want to show that to you from the pages of Scripture, from the first followers and how they made sense of this and how they talked about it and how they lived in light of it. So let's dive into this tour from the book of Acts. Now, a lot of you bring your Bibles. Don't try to hang with your Bible this morning. It will all be on the screen, and hopefully that will be sufficient proof enough, all right? So we're going to start in. Right out of the uh, opening verses of the book of Acts, we have the author. His name is Luke, and he was a very um, studied historian. He wrote a previous book called the book of Luke. And then this is his sequel, the book of Acts. And he starts out the book of Acts with some very important information. You can think about if you're writing a history and you've got some things you want to make clear, anytime you're writing an introduction, right, you want to be setting the stage. Setting the stage. And that's what he's doing here. He's going to lay out some main points and he's going to use the rest of the book to unpack those things. That's just what any good writer would do. And so how does he set the stage? Well, let's look at the opening verses of the book of Acts. This is chapter 1, three verses in. Here's what he says. He says this. He, Jesus, presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So here's his introduction. He's laying out what's most important. What does he say is most important? He says right out of the gate, he appeared to us. He's risen from the dead. It's real. It's true. Setting the stage right out of the gate. Resurrection. I want to draw your attention to this fact of history. Resurrection. Well, then we keep moving through the book of Acts in chapter 1. Now, don't worry. We're not going to go through all 28 chapters. All right? So just if you're nervous. But we're starting here in, in, in the opening chapters. There's a lot of data here. And in, as we continue through chapter 1... There's something that is disruptive that has happened, and that's this. One of Jesus' first followers named Judas, one of the 12, the 12 disciples, he betrayed Jesus. And in his grief and his sorrow, he commits suicide. And so the first followers of Jesus feel like having 12 of them is very important. It's very significant. The The number 12 is very important in the Old Testament and in the Bible. And so they say, we have to replace him. So as they're thinking about replacing Judas, they've got a job description in mind. What would that possibly be? Let's check it out. So here's them describing this scenario. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us. Here it is a witness to his resurrection. So they're, they're contemplating a couple different dudes to be one of the 12. And they're saying, what's the job description? Well, the job description is we got to testify. We have to be those that have witnessed his physical resurrection from the dead. That's the job. We got to talk about it. And if this, if this guy or this guy can't do that, they can't do this job, right? The job is to testify about the resurrection. We see that, Acts chapter 1. Well, we move on from chapter 1, and we move to chapter 2, and we see the first sermon preached. And it comes from a guy named Peter. Peter um, is one of the main 
people written about in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He's also a centerpiece of the book of Acts. And he's one of the leaders. He's a prominent figure. And we find him preaching to a group of people who need to understand something that's going on. So what's going on is what's called the giving of the Holy Spirit. And um, <clears throat> Jesus is risen from the dead, and he says that he's going to give his Holy Spirit that will empower people for works of ministry. And one of those works of ministry is healing, okay? The power of the Holy Spirit being poured out. Another one of those gifts of, um, of the Holy Spirit that we're going to see is what's called speaking in tongues. And in this context, what that means is speaking in languages that you have no training in. Okay, there's a lot we could say about that that I won't say today. But the whole point is this. There's all this miraculous stuff going on, and people are wondering, what is happening? Some people thought these people were drunk, and so it needs an explanation. And so Peter, as a leader, stands up, and he explains what's happening, all this miraculous stuff. And he says this in Acts chapter 2. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works, and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourself know. This Jesus delivered up according to the, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Here it is, verse 24. But God raised him up, loosing the pains of death like it couldn't hold him. Because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And then jump to verse 32. He says it again. This Jesus, God raised up. And of that we are all witnesses. We've seen it. It happened. But there, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So you want to know the, the explanation? He says it twice for emphasis here. Verse 24, verse 32. God raised him up. Jesus is risen from the dead. We've seen it. It's a fact. It's a fact of history that you can't be apathetic about. It has to be reckoned with. So that's the first public sermon. And as usually is the case, when there's a public profession of faith, public preaching of the gospel, oftentimes there's public persecution. There's resistance. And the gospel always experiences resistance. So we jump to chapter 4. And they're speaking again. <clears throat> and look at what it says. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. Now this is just Bible language for the religious elite at that time. Okay? So the religious elite came upon them. And what, what, what was their reason? Well, the reason is verse 2. They were greatly annoyed because they were teaching and proclaiming the people in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So we just see it, chapter 4. They can't shut up about this resurrection, right? So much so that the religious elites are feeling threatened. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to have to make sense of it. They don't want to come to terms with it. It says, verse 2, they are annoyed. But it gets worse for the opposition. Because these first followers, they were experiencing like we've already talked about, <clears throat> the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit. Evidence in miracles of healing. And that happens in, verse four, or in chapter 4. So they have this guy, he's crippled, and through the power of the Holy Spirit working in Jesus' first followers, resurrection power working through them, they heal this guy. 
And so let's look at what it says. <clears throat> the religious elite take this guy, set him down, and they say to Jesus' followers, explain. And when they had set him in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? So we see Peter again, spokesman. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, here it is, whom God raised from the dead. By him, this man is standing before you well. So what's the message? The message is the power of the Holy Spirit to work through humans, to do miracles, takes place. Why? Because of the resurrection. Because Jesus is alive. The same resurrection power, the Bible says, Romans chapter 8, that, that, that rose Jesus from the dead lives in those who follow him. And, and, and miracles of healing is evidence of that. So here's the deal. If, you, if you're drawing connections, no resurrection of Jesus, no power for ministry. That's what we see. But since the resurrection is true, there is power for ministry that looks like people getting a foretaste of the day when Jesus returns and makes all things right. That's what healing is. It's a sign. It's a sign that says the power of the Holy Spirit is breaking into history, right? And one day it's going to look like healing's everywhere, right? There will be no crying, no tears, no pain, no suffering. And this little event that you're seeing right now is just an inbreaking of that in a small way. It's a foretaste of what's coming. You know, it's kind of like if you go to a nice dinner and you order a nice appetizer. It's like a really, you know, we've been talking about heavy appetizers at our church with uh, potlucks. If you're new here, that's one of our things. Heavy appetizers. It's all about heavy appetizers. I like heavy appetizers. You go to a restaurant, you order a nice $20 appetizer. What are you expecting is going to come after that, right? An appetizer is indicative of something that's coming. Now, are you expecting PB&J after your $20 appetizer? You're not. You're expecting something maybe a little better. It's not going to be mac and cheese, right? It's not going to be hot dogs. It's going to be something good, right? It's going to be something good. And that's what this is. The resurrection points to power in ministry. And this power of ministry for healing is a foretaste of what's to come. No resurrection, no power. No resurrection, no hope. No resurrection, no hope that Jesus will one day return and make all things right. Because he's still dead. So you're starting to catch the theme here. You're starting to catch the theme here. Right? Now, let me give you a little nuance on the book of Acts. Up to this point in the book of Acts, they're exclusively talking to Jewish people. And that's very normal. The first, Jesus was Jewish, born in a Jewish context. His first followers were all Jewish converts. <coughs> He's mainly talking to Jewish people. And these people knew their Bibles well. They knew the Old Testament history, how it connected to Jesus, the historical context of the Messiah. But the Bible says in the book of Acts that the message of the gospel, it can't just stay with one group of people. It has to radiate out. This is why this church, in our vision statement, says that we're a spirit-filled family that seeks to make disciples and plant churches among neighbors, Eastside Church, Redeemer City Church, plant church planting, and nations, right? We've got to plant churches among the nations. 
through declaration and demonstration. It can't just stay here. So in the book of Acts, we see it going beyond Jewish people. It's going beyond the nation of Israel. And that's what happens here. Jesus, I'm sorry, uh, Peter now is going to talk to some people. The technical term is Gentiles, people that aren't Jewish. And they don't have all the history. They don't have all the insider information, okay? And so look at what he says to them. He's just going to give them a concise gospel presentation. And here's what he says. This is from Acts, <coughs> Acts chapter 10. He says this, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea. So Jesus had become known, Jews and Gentiles. But they don't have a backstory. Beginning from Galilee, from the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses, there it is again, we've seen it, of all that he did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day, and here it is, made him to appear. Not to all the people, but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after, here it is, after he rose from the dead. So this is just a concise gospel summary. Did you notice the finale? The finale is Jesus is risen. Jesus is risen from the dead, right? If there's a reason for you to be a Christian, it's this. The fact of the resurrection. He rose from the dead. Now, I know this is starting to feel a bit repetitive, but I want you to see it and prove it to you from the text that the centrality of the resurrection was on the forefront of the brains of these first followers of Jesus. Okay? Now, this next scripture is a completely different audience again. Again, he's now talking to Jewish people. And again, Jewish elite people, like leaders, right? They had authority. They knew the Old Testament really well. And the message is the same as you're going to see in how he concludes it. Look at it. He says, brothers, sons of the family of Abraham. That just means Jewish people. And among those, <clears throat> and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of the salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning them. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in the tomb. Here it is. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who have come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now as witnesses to the people. Again, it's the theme. He came, he died, he's risen from the dead. We've seen it. We've got to talk about it. We saw it with our own eyes. We can't not share what we know is true. It doesn't, it doesn't matter the audience. Have you caught that yet? Jewish, Gentile, context, whatever. It doesn't matter the audience. We have to get to the resurrection. The, re the resurrection is central. So now we move on to Acts chapter 17. And again, the audience is different. He's talking to Greek people who are very studied in secular philosophy. And they love to debate. And he shows up in a, in a context probably like this and stands up and shares about Jesus. And check out the way that he sums it all up. We won't read the whole sermon, just a couple of verses here. He says this in Acts 17 verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he's fixed a day 
on which he will judge the world in righteousness. Okay, so stop right there. So he says, here's the, here's the deal. There is a day of judgment. There will, I, mean, I, know, I know right now it seems like the scales are out of balance, right? Evil oftentimes look like, looks like it's winning. We all know what that's like. And Paul shows up and says, and it's the same for them back then 2,000 years ago as it is for us today. There's this tension that we live in. Suffering seems to get the upper hand. Evil seems to get the upper hand. And Paul shows up and he says, I know it seems that way, but there is coming a day when the scales will be righted. That's called the day of judgment. All things will be made right. God hasn't just like overlooked things, swept it under the rug. Even though it seems like it like right now, there's, day, there's coming a day of judgment. So what's the response? The response is repentance. Everyone should repent. Turn from your sin. Turn towards Jesus the Savior. Now the question might come, why would I do that? Like, you got to give me some reason. I'm not just going to do it just because you say I should do it. Well, he says, here's the reason. Verse 31, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Okay, so why should I trust in this Jesus guy? Well, here's why. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So if you want some foundation on which to stand, if you want to know that you should repent and trust that there will be an ultimate day of judgment, here's the reason. He was dead, and now he's alive. If there's any reason to trust somebody, it's someone who's, who said they were going to get killed and rise from the dead and then did it. Right? That's the logic here. There's no one else in the history who's ever done that. Assurance. You can have assurance. I love that word. He's given assurance by raising him from the dead. So the deed confirms the works. The deed confirms the works. The most unique person ever to walk the earth. He's God. He overcame death. So how could you not want to follow him? All right, last one. Last piece of evidence. We move forward to the book, um, to chapter 26. And uh, that was just in 17, the Apostle Paul. And it's Apostle Paul again. And he's brought before some secular authorities, Roman rulers, He's created a, quite a disturbance of people not liking what he's saying. There's been some unrest. And as a result, he's gotten in trouble with the authorities, and they call him to account. Like, Paul, what is your deal? What are you talking about? Why are you causing all of this uproar? So he's just testifying about his Christian faith. And he says this. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying to both small and great saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. So you see it there? Christ must suffer. He came. He died for our sins. And being first to rise from the dead, right, there's, there's going to be judgment and resurrection someday. For there are more people going to rise from the dead, like all of us, but that news is light, proclaim light, both to our people, both to Jewish people and every other nation in the world and the Gentiles. That's what Paul's getting at here. It's all about the resurrection. So what do we see from the beginning to the end of the book of Acts, chapter 1 to 26? From the beginning and the end of the book of Acts, we see the centrality of Easter, the centrality of the resurrection. It doesn't matter the audience. 
Easter is not something spoken of just like once a year when we break out the ham and kids run around and look for eggs, right? Easter is every day. You roll out of bed, your feet hit the floor, and it's praise God that Jesus is risen from the dead. That's, that fact of history is changing my life every single day. So I'm getting ahead of myself, but the question is this. What does this mean for us? Madison, Wisconsin, 2019, what does this mean for us? First of all, let me suggest this. What this means, first of all, is that Christianity is primarily understood and trusted only if we understand it, not because of some teachings, not because of a wise sage with some wise words, but rather Christianity should be trusted based on an event of history. You feel the difference there? This is what is emphasized over and over again. We saw it in the book of Acts, beginning to end. Listen to what they did not say. The first followers did not say, you should follow Jesus because he'll make your life better. That's how a lot of us approach it, I think. They didn't say, Jesus is the way because he'll make you happy, healthy, and wealthy. Jesus is the way because he'll make you more comfortable. Jesus is the way because he'll give you a better marriage. Jesus is the way because he'll help you figure out parenting. Jesus has 12 principles for making your business explode and make you a millionaire. That's not what, that's not what they said, right? Jesus is the way because he said some really good things like turn the other cheek. And you should forgive one another and love one another. And we all can agree with that, right? That's not what they said. No, the main message over and over again is about an event. You feel that? It's not about teachings. It's about an event of history that's either true or false. Jesus is the way to be trusted. You can trust him as the way because of an event. It's not even first and foremost a set of teachings or something that has to do with you and what he's going to do for you. Like, let me convince you to come to Jesus because he's going to do all these great things for you. That's the way we phrase it a lot. And that is important, and that is true in a secondary sense. Primarily, first and foremost, it's not even about us. It's not even about us. That comes later. First and foremost, it's about Jesus. What, who is he, and what did he do, period? Who is Jesus, and what did he do? That's what we have to come to terms with. That's where we make a break, right? And the claim of the Bible the claim for all of Christian history is that Jesus is God proven by his resurrection. That's who he is. That's what he did. Died for our sins, risen from the dead. That's what Paul said is of first importance. That's who he is. That's what he's done. And his teachings then are validated. All he said about turn the other cheek and love your neighbor and forgive one another, da 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 All that is true and absolutely important and validated why? Because the resurrection is true. So it doesn't have its primary importance if the resurrection is false. If the resurrection is false, look, look it. Jesus is just a guy murdered by the Romans who said some stuff that, you know, resonated with some people. It doesn't have transcendent significance. You can just put, if, if the resurrection is false, put him in the category of Gandhi or anybody else where we respect what these guys said. Right? But it's the resurrection that makes him unique 
and you see that passion jump out of the page of scriptures and how the first followers testified over and over again at the expense of their life. So here's a summary of this. Tim Keller says it this way, and I love it. He says, Christianity is not good advice. It's good news. Christianity is not just good advice. You feel that? You should do some stuff. No, it's good news. What does that mean? It'd be like if you were living during the time of the armistice in World War II. World War II was probably the most significant event uh, in the 20th century. The most, most earth-shattering event of the 20th century. So when you hear the news, the war is over, that's something to be reckoned with, right? That news is something that you have to live in light of, right? Either that, that news is true or it's not, and you want to know for sure if you're living in that time. Because there's a lot at stake. Like, either Hitler's on the march or he's not anymore, right? That has, there's a lot at stake there, right? So if you continue to live like the news is not true, that's going to have devastating consequences for you. Probably, number one, living in fear that my loved ones are going to continue to die or that we're going to be invaded or we're going to be enslaved or culture will be turned on its head or whatever. But if you receive that news as true because it was and it is, then that's also going to greatly affect your life, you see? Like you can't stay apathetic about that news. The first followers, see, they knew this because it happened to them. That's what we saw. We are witnesses, they keep saying. We were witnesses. We're witnesses. We're willing to lay down our life to keep telling you that we're witnesses and it's true. See, they saw with their own eyes that the war against sin and death was over and they had to tell each other about it. They had to tell others about it. They knew this would significantly change their life over and over again, one way or another, eternally change their life one way or the other. So Christianity is not to be trusted primarily because of some teachings of Jesus that you like or resonate with, but because of something that factually happened in history. We have to come to terms with the history one way or the other. The deeds validate the words. The deeds validate the person. The deed shows that you can trust Jesus with your life. That's first. Second of all, if you're a believer here this morning, I wonder if we can start to take our cues more from what we saw in the pages of the book of Acts in terms of how they talked about their faith. At the Vine, we talk about making disciples. And we don't shy away from that because we believe that Jesus is the living water. And if someone is thirsty, how could you hold back living water from them? So if you don't know Jesus this morning, here, here's the message. Let me just summarize it. You can trust Jesus because he died for your sins. And he bore the wrath of God in your place that you deserve for your sin to bear the punishment that you deserve. Why? Because God loves you. God loves you. And if you trust him by faith, follow him, give him your life, confess your sins and turn to him, that's called repentance. He will forgive you as a gift of sheer mercy. Nothing that you could earn, but a gift of sheer mercy alone. And then knowing that your sins are forgiven, Jesus says, come to me and receive living water. 
receive life, receive satisfaction and peace that you long for, and you'll know that for eternity. But you can only know that's true because he proved it to be true in his resurrection. Listen to what Paul said again. Acts 17, he's fixed a day on which he'll judge the world in righteousness by a man who he's appointed, and of this we, he has given assurance, you can be assured, to all by raising him from the dead. The resurrection is the assurance. If you're an unbeliever here this morning, if you're not, not sure if you're a believer here this morning, hear from the pages of Scripture. Hear from the Apostle Paul. Hear from me this morning. You can be assured that Jesus is worthy to be trusted because the resurrection is true. That's the Christian claim. But if you already know this to be true, if you already know this to be true, let's ask ourselves this. Let's ask ourselves this. <coughs> when was the last time, when, when was the last time when we shared our faith, when it sounded like what we just read, right? Like, do we talk about history or do we just talk about our feelings? Our feelings are good, but maybe our feelings should be connected to what happened in history, Right? Because everybody's got feelings. Like you like Muhammad and you like the Book of Mormon and I like Jesus. Yeah, we all have a subjective experience about our life and people that we resonate with. But that's not what this is. This is a fact of history that has to be reckoned with. It's not an opinion. It's actually something you can study and figure out. And there's evidence, right? And so do we talk about the resurrection? Do we talk about the facts of history? Let me commend that to you. Let's take our cues from how the first followers did it, how those first churches were planted, how they set the Roman Empire upside down. This tiny little band of spirit-filled people against the most crushing military political force the world has ever seen, and they couldn't stop it. They couldn't stop it. Do we speak of the resurrection? So number one, do, do we see Christianity as good advice or good news? And what's the news? The news is he's risen from the dead. He died from your sin. You can trust him. He will forgive you. And it's proven by the resurrection. And finally, thirdly, let me just say this. Jesus is Lord because of the resurrection. He said in Acts 28, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. That's just Jesus speak for I am Lord. I'm Lord. And he calls everyone to repent of the, hear this, the worthlessness of sin. He says, you can come, you can drink living water. It's available. It tastes good. And it's available for you. This is the message of Christianity. Jesus is Lord. Muhammad is not Lord. Confucius is not Lord. Karl Marx is not Lord. Freud is not Lord. Secular philosophy is not Lord. Whatever you heard in college, that's not Lord, right? Jesus is Lord. He's risen from the dead. That makes him the most unique person ever. He's fully to save you from your sins because he proved he can handle it. Death, the penalty of sin, could not hold him down. It has been defeated. And so as you come to him and are joined to him by faith, sin will be defeated in your life too. And the day of your future resurrection will be a day of glory and beauty and joy and not one of fear. What does the Bible say? The Bible says in Romans 8, there is no condemnation. A lot of us come in here feeling this weight of condemnation. There's no condemnation for those in Christ. There's no condemnation for those in Christ. 
The same power that rose Jesus from the dead can live in you. If he rose from the dead, he can deal with all that we're dealing with today. Come, the, the message is come. Come to him and live. Come to him and live. This is the message of Easter. This is the message of Christianity. Jesus is alive and he is Lord. Come to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for how you have given us your word, shows us these things to be true. Thank you for so many in this room that we see and recognize as changed lives, power for ministry that only happens through your power given through the Holy Spirit because of the resurrection. Lord, may that be something that marks us, completes us, and that we live in light of that with joy just redounding from this room, reflecting from us as we leave today. Um, Lord, I pray you would banish hypocrisy from us. May there be repentance and then joy. And we trust you so much. We love you so much. We thank you for the evidence of your grace just the fact that we exist as a church. May it continue. In Jesus' name, amen.